So this morning, I'm number five in the Beatitudes series. We're to blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And um, if you've tuned in previously, there's at least been a couple of comments back and forth with Pastor James and I where I have expressed my deep trouble over the fact that I was assigned blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, because it seems, spoiler alert, I'm not very good at showing mercy. I don't really know a lot about the subject, and it turns out that on this journey of preparing for this message, I realized just how unqualified I am to be talking about mercy. So as long as you all are okay with just being led into my internal dialogue as I processed, um, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, then I feel fine and confident to you know, share what God has led me to. I'm not up here giving a this is what you do to get this, or, or, or I'm not an expert on the subject. Um, so if I say anything that you disagree with, feel free to disagree. It's all good. Um, I offer this as a point of contemplation and consideration. Um, so here we go. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. If this was a purely intellectual pursuit, or if I was tackling this at work, the first thing I would do is interpret the text based on the text. So that's what I did. I googled what is mercy. <laughs> so, right, the definition. Uh, mercy is compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. Again, mercy is compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. Okay, so with that framework, I looked back at the beatitude. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Is anyone else bothered by the fact that this is the only beatitude that's self-defining? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Everybody else got beatitudes that were like, Randy, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall receive comfort. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I've got blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Okay, and like the number one thing I learned in elementary school, when you're giving the definition of the word, you don't use the word in the definition. You can't. And so I was sitting here thinking, why? Why did Jesus say, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And it kind of dawned on me, what if the point of this specific beatitude is a feedback, feedback loop? Something that you've got to give mercy to receive mercy. You've got to receive mercy to give mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Maybe. I don't know. We'll come back to that. So the second thing I did, of course, is I kept looking for mercy in the book of Matthew. And so here we are at Matthew chapter 18, verses 23 through 35. This is the story of the wicked or unforgiving servant. And I know it's a long text, but I'm going to read it verbatim for you, okay? And it'll be up on the screen as well. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle his accounts with his servants. When he began to settle... One was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and payment to be made. 
So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants and began to choke him saying, pay me what you owe. So this fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him saying, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went um, and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported it to the master, all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Okay, so the point of the story, right? It's pretty obvious. God doesn't want us to be stingy with forgiveness when he hasn't been stingy with forgiveness of us. Obvious, right? The point is obvious. Thank you, James. It's pretty obvious. <laughs> but you see, this, this is a problem for me. When a story is too obvious, I don't really apply it to my life because I look at it and I go, I'm pretty good at making exceptions, and I really don't think this story applies to my specific set of circumstances. So I get the general principle, forgive. Yes, I should be forgiving, but, and then I go on in my mind with the buts, okay? So with that backdrop in mind, I'd like to ask a question. I'm going to poll the audience, okay? Um, who in here has ever had or currently has student loan debt? Yeah? Yeah? Have in the past or, or currently have? Yes. Okay. So same thing with the mortgage. Who in here has had in the past or currently has a mortgage? Yes. Okay. So we are told in society that these are good debts. With a student loan, you're investing in your future. You're going to have an education to better yourself. You're told that your income potential will be higher and that you'll have no problem paying back your student loan, right? And regardless of whether or not that's the truth, that's how it was sold, right? And then with the mortgage, the same thing. You know, you're not paying rent anymore. You're investing in your future. You're really doing something that's going to help you in the long run. You know, it, it, society views these things as good debts, okay? Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands on this one. But who in here has ever had a bad debt, okay? So, like, let's say a gambling debt. Or maybe you had a debt because you had to pay bail to get out of jail. Or maybe you had so much credit card debt that you were in over your head simply because of, let's face it, selfish and unnecessary spending. Okay? So with that context, I'm going to reread. Well, I'm not really going to read. I'm going to read for you my paraphrased version of the story, the new revised Megan Donnelly version. Okay? So the king... <laughs> <laughs> I know, for sure. But I've given it qualifiers. I wrote this, okay? The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a CEO who wanted to call in some debts owed by his employees. One employee, we'll call him John, was brought to him who, hundred, who owed him $100,000 as part of the company's programs of assistance for first-time home buyers and for student loans to support continuing education. 
And since John could not pay, the CEO threatened to foreclose on John's home, effectively making John's wife and his kids homeless, and to, and to pursue the student loan debt in bankruptcy court. So John fell on his knees and pled with him, saying, have patience on me, and I'll pay you everything I owe. And out of pity for him, the CEO released John and completely erased his debts. But when John left the CEO's presence, he found one of his fellow employees, Mike, who owed him a gambling debt of a thousand bucks, and he seized him. And John began to choke Mike, saying, pay what you owe. So Mike did the same thing. He fell down and pled with him, saying, have patience on me, and I will repay you everything. But John refused, and, since the, and he went and sent some thugs after Mike until he should pay the debt. Now, the news of these dealings spread quickly among all the other workers because they were seriously upset. And then they went and reported to the CEO all that had taken place. Then the CEO summoned John and said to him, you're wicked. You're such a hypocrite. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have mercy on your fellow man as I had mercy on you? And in anger, the CEO delivered John to even bigger thugs and to bankruptcy court until he should pay all his debt. So this gets me a little bit closer to kind of fully grasping the story, but let's, let's go into Mike and John's relationship a little bit more, okay? So I'm going to give some hypotheticals here, okay? What if Mike and John's wives were best friends? And, uh, and John's wife persuaded him to pay this gambling debt so that Mike's wife and his kids would be okay. And maybe let's say that um, this wasn't the first time that John paid off Mike's gambling debt. Let's say maybe it was the sixth time that, my, that, that Mike had gotten in trouble and John bailed him out. And let's say for those past five times that Mike had really only paid back a very small fraction of what he owed John. And so John, being in this situation where he's terrified by being called into the CEO's office and having his full debt um, called out, you know, like the, he, the, the demand for the full payment of his debt, really shook and rattled John. And so you can see kind of why John would then be like, look, I'm trying to get my house in order. I'm trying to like, you know, call, call this in. I'm trying to get the money. What if the CEO calls me back in and, and changes his mind and says I need to pay him everything I owe him? Does this change the way we feel about the story? Would John's actions at some point have been justified? Do these additional facts change the way God sees the story? I don't think so. I want to point something else out in this story, and I, I know it's going to be chasing a squirrel without intending to catch it. But I raise this next point as kind of a, something for your consideration. Notice the king or the CEO's reaction in the story. He withdraws the previously bestowed mercy and pours out the full wrath of his, of his um that pours out his full wrath on the judgmental servant. The last sentence of the parable is, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This fits with Paul's words in Romans 2. 
these fit with <laughs> Paul's words in Romans 2. <laughs> Therefore, you have no excuse, O oh man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Now, earlier in Romans, Paul defines these same things as unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slander, hating God, being insolent, strife, boastful, haughty, inventors of evil, being disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, or ruthless. Okay, back to Romans 2. We know that the, God, uh, the, the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things in that laundry list, right? Do you suppose, oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, i.e. his mercy, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impertinent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. I don't know about you, but this passage causes me to be concerned that passing judgment gets me in hot water with God. So I'm not saying that all judgments that we form about others are bad. And actually, I think that the feelings of judgment we experience internally reflect a distinction between good and evil that we each carry in our own hearts. I mean, I think that the very fact that Paul is able to like write that laundry list of like bad things is a reflection of what is God and what isn't. And it's a reflection that is right to recognize a distinction between good and bad actions. But I think this is a partial reflection of the nature of God. You know, as James is fond of, of quoting um, 1 Corinthians 13, we see now dimly through a mirror, but then we shall see fully. You know, I think that when we, when we have these good and bad distinctions, we don't always get the full story. And unfortunately, I know that my ability to judge is lar largely skewed by my own blind spot um, that when it comes to recognizing sin in my own life. And I've kind of come to realize my judgment is imperfect. So what's the remedy for imperfect judgment? So back in law school, I had the um, good fortune of taking a class from a, uh, from a judge. He now sits on the Virginia Court of Appeals, but um, previously he had worked in the trial court level. And one of the big things, what, you know, the majority of his job was dealing with criminal defendants. And he specifically told us about his process when sentencing a criminal. And he said that every time he was faced with that task, he would take all of the case file, he would read through the entire thing, he'd take the sentencing report, which contains intimate details about the crime and about 
the defendant's life story. What got him to the point that he did such a thing to get him convicted? And this judge would sit there and pray and meditate over those, that story until he could see in his own life that if he had had to walk that same path as the person who was coming before him to be sentenced, how he could have ultimately made those same life choices. And it wasn't until he allowed mercy and empathy to develop in his heart that he would then think on and decide the right sentence. I wish there were more people like him in the criminal justice field. And I think that there's something key in this story, which is that it's almost impossible to be wrongfully judgmental when we allow empathy and love and mercy to develop in our hearts. But I think there's still a need to recognize what's right and wrong. Because Jesus, who is fully righteous and has every experience of being a man, he executes perfect judgment. And I think that if we can trust that God will judge, that he sees and acknowledges the wrongs against each of us and will serve just consequences according to his perfect measure of grace and wrath, then we're free to leave judgment behind and offer mercy to both our friends and our foes. And that's what God asks of each of us, to show mercy and forgiveness. And that's one of those things that God and I talked about. You know, when we were preparing for this message, you know what he said to me is, Megan, you're not the prosecutor. You're not. That's not your job. And he, he, he reminded me, Megan, do you know what another name for the evil one is? He is the accuser. You aren't the accuser. You aren't the prosecutor, unless that's your specific real role in society. That's not my role. We, the church, our role is to show mercy. So remember the story of the unforgiving sermon, servant. Jesus told that story as the answer when Peter asked him this question. How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Yep, Peter thought he was being generous, right? Seven times, I'll forgive him, seven times. And we all know that Jesus responded and said, I don't say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. And for any of you who are doing the multiplication in your head, because I did, it's 490 times. And I might be the first person to say, I think I can keep track to 490. <laughs> I might, I really might be able to. But that's not the point, right? This is, this is hyperbolic. It's, it's symbolic of the fact that Jesus doesn't want us to have an end to the amount of times that we forgive. And that's really the point. We're to show mercy, period. If you want a bright line rule, because I certainly do, it's forgive, show mercy, no exceptions. Then you will receive mercy. So Celeste, my sweet sister, once preached a message uh, about forgiveness and how it benefits the person doing the forgiveness. And it doesn't necessarily allow the person who did the wrong off the hook, but it is for the benefit of the person doing forgiveness, doing the forgiving. And this is true especially when you've been on the receiving end of something truly heinous or vicious. 
And if anybody in here is struggling with forgiveness out of something like that, I'd encourage you to talk to Celeste or talk to Pastor James to really, to, to really get over that and be able to get to a place of forgiveness. Because getting to a place where you can show mercy will open up the floodgates of mercy to you. It's a life-giving feedback loop of mercy once we get it going. So as part of my process for preparing for the message, I took some time to think about when I have been shown mercy. And again, to be completely honest, the more I thought about this question, the more frustrated I got. There have been times where my husband, James the Younger, and I have actually... um, we're really in need of mercy for some things that, that he did. And um, that mercy was, for the most part, withheld. And so I, I've had mercy frustrated in my life. And I also, I'll, I'll stand here in front of you and say, you know, I just don't do big wrong things. I haven't been healed from addiction I haven't been set free from some terrible life circumstances, and I haven't been granted some pardon for a huge criminal wrong. My sin is like the garden variety sins. I'm prideful. I say hurtful things to others, especially without thinking, and I'm selfish. And here's the thing. Usually people don't forgive me for these things. They just conclude that I'm bossy or arrogant. (laughs) Seriously. And then they adjust their relationship with me accordingly. But there were times that God brought to mind, and these are sweet and wonderful and beautiful times, when my husband or my family are able to see me through a lens of love, and they choose to respond in love and forgiveness even when I don't deserve it, even when I've said a hurtful thing just to wound even when I've been completely myopic in my view and haven't even considered what's going on around me, it's those times where I see them react in love and forgiveness that all of a sudden, I'm out of it. I snap right out of it, and I am the loving, content, grace-filled, and merciful Megan. That is the power of mercy, that it allows us to see ourselves as God sees us, as completely whole, forgiven and free, perfect, as he created us. I think that the beautiful insight I've gained in this process is that I can stand here and say, I need more mercy, seriously. And the beatitude is pretty clear that in order for me to receive mercy, I have to give it, especially when it isn't deserved, especially when it's against my better judgment, because I'm not ultimately the one who's supposed to judge. And so here's your homework for this week, if you care to take it on. Think on these things. How have you been shown mercy? Is there an area in your life where you wish there was a little more mercy? Or maybe a lot more mercy? And who has received your mercy? Is there someone whom you ought to forgive? Is there someone who comes to your mind and you just can't get yourself to a place of forgiveness? I'd encourage you to try empathy. We're about to enter into a time of prayer, which will include us saying together out loud the Lord's Prayer. And when we say that prayer, we ask God to show us mercy 
for our sins as we forgive those who've sinned against us. If that doesn't prove my point, I don't know what does. Mercy really is a feedback loop. You can't have it without giving it. And here's the beautiful thing about mercy, and I'll leave you with this. It creates a new space in which God can move and work. Mercy makes the soil of our souls fertile. It makes the hardened heart soft again. It makes a space for healing. And mercy transforms our thinking. It makes us possible for us to be innocent and new creations in Christ. His mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Amen.